0: warm welcome to you all hope you'll soundly enjoy our program
1: Welcome to Real Britannia, it's a very British podcast about very British films, with the occasional hint of professionalism. Hi, I'm Scott, with me this week is Stephen, good morning sir. Hello Matt, how are you doing? I'm very well, this is a bit strange because it's the beginning of December in in the world of podcasting, when this episode goes out, we're probably looking towards the end of January, beginning of February, and I don't know about you but I'm getting in the Christmas spirit now, you know, the decorations went up this weekend and trying to find those rare old British Christmas movies that, you know, we only see once a year. And we haven't as yet recorded our Christmas episode, which is, (laughs) you know, we'll be recording in a couple of weeks' time. So this this episode is going to leapfrog the Christmas episode. It's a bit bizarre the way this works, you know, because we are very much in advance in, in what we've recorded now.
0: I think that the way that we're going,
1: we'll be rec- recording um, next year's
0: Christmas episode in August.
1: <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me because we were talking last week off air about what we're going to do for Easter. You know, we've come up <laughs> we've come up with the perfect, well, you came up with the perfect one. Um, but I like this idea of doing sort of celebratory or anniversaries or something. I'd like to sort of keep an eye out if there's a an anniversary coming up of a certain film or an actor's birthday or something that we could look at next year just to to tie it in but we've got to be in advance of this you know we've, yeah. got, to, we've got to really well, think abso- ahead.
0: absolutely i know i know that on on the stinking pause um you when you had more time mm. um and it was your, when that was you the only podcast you were doing rather than one of 12 um, <laughs> it seems like that it's yeah. it's uh, you 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 did have like uh, an anniversary movie which was yeah. you know an anniversary of somebody's birth or death or when it was released
1: yeah.
0: um, and that was a, a great hook mm. to be able to actually give a, a reason for putting in a movie that you might have maybe put off or or not addressed at that time so it was, it was a nice thing so I'm yeah. quite happy for for us to do that as we have discussed but we'll we'll have to look at starting that in the in the new year which obviously will probably mean episode it's sometime
1: in May. Uh, <laughs> whenever, <our tune. laughs> whenever, yeah. I mean, I know for a fact that with regard to sort of classic Hollywood movies, 2019's a big year because 1939, 80 years prior, was it was always referred to as the golden year of Hollywood because it was Wizard of Oz, um, Stagecoach, Gone with the Wind, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Ninochka. You know, it was this year of like, wow, how many great movies are there that came out in one particular year? And there's there's been a couple of years that are very sort of similar, you know, almost on a par with it. But
0: what was what was the golden year for British cinema? Exactly, we've got to
1: look at this, haven't we? There may be, there may not, there might not be a golden year, but I've got a funny feeling somewhere in the 80s might, might figure, we were talking about this in, in a previous episode, that the 80s there was this big revival for British movies, but generally we're going to go back, I reckon it'll be the 40s or the 50s where you get a run of Ealing comedies or something like that, you know, that there's going to be a year where there's like the year The Third Man came out, but then there's also going to be something with it or something. I don't know. You know, mm.
0: It's worth looking into. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and there's got to be some anniversaries of, of famous births or something coming up. So that's something we can look at next year. For this week... It was my selection for you, and it's quite an important one because it's, it's probably one of the greatest British directors you know, this country has ever produced. And it's not Michael Winner. And it's not Michael. We will touch on some Michael Winner at some point, possibly. Let's just take a short break. We're going to be back straight after this. It's 1935. It's the f- I think this is the first movie version of The 39 Steps, directed by Alfred Hitchcock.
0: steps see, the very brilliant agent of a certain
1: foreign power is on the point of obtaining a secret vital to your air defense.
0: You ever heard of a thing called persecution mania? You don't believe me? Frankly, I don't. These men will stick at nothing. I'm the only person who <clears throat> will stop them. They are not stopped. It's only a matter of days, perhaps hours, before the secret is out of the country. These men act quickly. There's a man in Scotland whom I must visit next, if anything
1: is to be done. beautiful, mysterious woman pursued by a gunman.
0: Sounds like a spy story. There's been a murder committed up on the first floor. Are you? No, no. Now, those two men out there, they're spies, foreigners. They've murdered
1: a woman in my flat, and now they're waiting for me. Oh, come off it! Man. Never heed the murder, Mr. Hadley. I don't doubt you'll be able to convince Scotland Yard of your innocence as easily as you've convinced me.
0: I was desperate, I'm terribly sorry. I had to do it, okay? My name's Hannity, they're after me. I, I swear I'm innocent. You've got to help me. There's enough evidence there to hang anybody. Honey, you're under arrest. On the charge of willful out down. will a right along. He to the wrist.
1: I don't know how innocent you may be, but you're a woman, and you're defences, and you're alone on a desolate moor in the dark. Good girl, I'm accused of murder. Can't you realize the only
0: way I can clear myself is to expose these spies?
1: Where's Richard Henry? 39 Steps. Uh, it was released even on the 1st of August 1935 in the USA. Directed, of course, by Alfred Hitchcock. Starring Robert Donut. Madeline Carroll. We've got appearances here by Godfrey Toll. Peggy Ashcroft. John Laurie. Peggy Simpson. There's lots of little famous faces here that you know we're going to come across along the way. But the most important thing about the 39 Steps is that it's a Hitchcock movie. It's a British Hitchcock movie. Very early on in his career, the synopsis is a man in London tries to help a counter espionage agent, but when the agent is killed and the man stands accused, he must go on the run to save himself and stop aspiring, which is trying to steal top secret information. I am being very careful about what I say fact wise about Mr. Hitchcock over the next sort of thirty forty minutes here, mate, because we have a very dear mutual friend yes who possibly knows more about Alfred Hitchcock than anybody I know in the world. Um, We are, of course, referring to our dear friend Adam, Secret History of Hollywood and the Boy Clarence podcast. Hi, Adam. Hello. Hello, Mads. Can you imagine if we cock up on any, any minor facts here or trivia, he'll be down on us like a ton of bricks.
0: Well, the thing is, he's such a lovely, lovely man that he, he, he gently corrects us
1: at worst. But,
0: um, but the thing is that we're so fearful is because we don't want to disappoint him.
1: Exactly. It, w-
0: it wouldn't be anger, it'd just be disappointment.
1: It would be, yeah, especially if it turns out that we don't actually like this film um, because I, I don't think there's a Hitchcock movie that, that Adam, you know, hates at all. Have you seen this before? Because this is quite famously the first of three different versions of The 39 Steps. Have you seen this version previously, mate? Once. Once. Okay. How long ago?
0: Probably, uh, probably about seven years ago was okay. the one time I've seen it.
1: Yeah, I've seen it about three times. This was the third time for me. I, I just before we go into sort of analysing this or picking it apart, loved it, hated it, couldn't care less. Just as a general, dipping my toe in the water here of how you're feeling.
0: Oh, I I, I I thought it was absolutely splendid. Good man. Yeah. Okay, we're on the, um, we're on the same yeah, wavelength. Yeah, That's good. I'm not going to be slagging it off. I mean, it's uh, it's the one of uh, out the three iterations that are, are well known mm. of the the story. Um, it's the one I've seen least. Yes. Um, I and in actual fact, it's reverse order. I've seen the Robert Powell one the most often. That's oh, the first right. one I saw okay. actually. Yeah. And then the the Kenneth Moore, and this obviously was, it was actually the order of watching them, and this was going backwards as well.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. But
0: you could see how in the latter ones, even if they did do something slightly differently, they were still really just repeating some of the, not maybe shots, but some of the aspects of that was done. It was introduced in this here. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, you know, lots of other films, the same thing. I, they've yeah. they've taken from this, including you know Hitchcock himself. Um, you know, taking the elements of this and expanding out. This was where he he did sort of use as a as a testing ground, really, a litmus test for, for some of his ideas. I think wow. that he then
1: look at this threw. is is this a is this a trial run for North by Northwest? You know.
0: Well, there's, there's, there is that. that <laughs> this is this is there's lots of elements within this
1: yeah. that. Uh, uh,
0: explored elsewhere and have become, to some extent, tropes of Hitchcock. There's yeah. um, there's the man on the run um, as the mistaken identity of this a- accidental hero. Um, How often
1: does that happen in a Hitchcock yeah, movie?
0: <laughs> yeah, and a, a, a mysterious woman um, there, that, and that you know this was the this was the film that kicked off the entire public
1: consciousness of the MacGuffin. Yes of course yeah which is a famous hitchcock element to all of his films
0: yeah i mean somebody else first used the phrase but it was hitchcock that ran with using that as a phrase which now is part of the lexicon of filmmaking and it was him that that ran with it and defined it as a as a thing so this this is very much uh, the, the prototype that hitchcock and lots of other people have um built their careers on basically yeah of course so uh, but it's not just important as a you know and and good as a film that has inspired it is actually an enjoyable film in itself i think so so
1: i think so it's a massive british film at the time uh we're talking 1935 the silent era was only 5 6 years previously you know before the talkies really kicked off and if I remember rightly, I think it was a Galmont production, and and they needed to get the foot in the door of Hollywood at the time, which is why Robert Donat and Madeleine Carroll were brought on board because they were known over the pond, you know, they were known in Hollywood. And Hitchcock was slowly making a name for himself. I think the year before or two years before, he'd done his first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much with Peter Lorre. So yes. he was getting noticed, you know, so, you know, the British film industry. It's still pre-war, you know, so we've got a bit of money to invest in movies and and you know, the studios were were making names for themselves as well as the directors and the stars. And it's an ideal I think it's an ideal vehicle for a British movie. You know, it's set in in England, in Scotland. And it's a classic sort of spy chase thriller, like you say, the man on the run, the mistaken identity, the mysterious woman. And it's got everything in it because it's not only a drama. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of great set pieces. And interestingly, what you said about the two other versions, I think each version has adapted the source novel slightly differently. They've taken parts from John Buchan's original book and some versions have used some parts of it and the other versions have taken other parts. You know, the classic scenes all the way through it are the the railway. Um, on the fourth bridge I've seen all three versions but then isn't in the Robert Powell version there's a doesn't it end on Big Ben or something does yeah (laughs) it
0: it ends up in in House of Parliament in the you know what's variously called Victoria Tower or St Stephen's Tower various things yeah so Big Ben that's where it ends up and um, it did surprise me when I watched the other versions that that wasn't an integral part of the the finale itself (laughs) and and then, further exploration, discovering that there's very few of the elements that appear in any of the films. Really, that, and especially this version, mm. really that are in the book. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the most prominent
1: bits that does appear in the book is the um, is the milkman. hard to say <laughs> the milkman <laughs> it's, it's, because that's the bit I remember from the Kenneth Connor, Kenneth Connor, Kenneth Moore. <laughs> Kenneth, can, can oh, you imagine I Kenneth want to see the Kenneth <laughs> Connor
0: version. Oh, please,
1: somebody. <laughs> Carry on up the fourth bridge. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, I remember the promotional stuff was all the, the disguise of the Milkman because in the Kenneth Moore version, that that scene is dragged out. That's like really made quite tense. With the, the fact that you know the guys are waiting outside and is he going to get recognised? Yeah. But yeah, that's an element across all three. Is it in the Robert Powell one as well? From memory,
0: yes, it yeah, is, and we'll find out that. in probably about three years when, when we finished, get to there. it. We'll, we'll probably do one thirty-nine <laughs> steps a year and uh, get and, and get there. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot that isn't that isn't in the book. Mm. Um, from, I mean, I've never I've not read the book, but I've read um, read the synopsis of it yeah. and sort of the plot summary. And I do believe I did read. <laughs> there was a comment made um, by the author himself that about. When he'd seen seen this version, that he, he remarked, "Oh, I wonder how it'll turn out because it was so different from his own." <laughs> you know, he, he, he you know he, he was happy with it, yeah. but it was different enough that he 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 felt it was a different film, a different plot to what his actual book was. And uh. um, I do think that you know the, the treated in the book. It seems that the um, the the character of Hannay is a bit more of uh, an action man sort of proto james bond a sort of an everyman that becomes this danger man this yes. uh, yeah. you know rather than it being that he's um a secret agent or a spy in yeah he's an national agent himself yeah. but, he, but he ends up in that world and there was a sit. the The books carried on. There was several of the books that carried on with the character yes, getting deeper and deeper true. into that world. Yeah, and they, they made a TV series along those lines as well with Robert Powell. That's uh, right.
1: God, oh, that's that's bringing back memories. Yeah, yeah. It's called Hannah, so, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: it's called Hannah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I remember of it, but I don't remember anything much about it. No. But that that was that was where the character's origin came from. The story came from. But this take on it is, like I say, is trying to keep trying to keep the the lead character at arm's length and and having more as a, an everyman, you know, him him being able to be a milkman or a car mechanic or, yeah. or anything. I mean, obviously the accent of of the man um, doesn't belie. Um, an everyday worker in Britain at the time, but, <laughs> but
1: that, even that then was he's supposed no to be way Canadian. reaching out to,
0: I think, trying yeah. to make it identifiable that, that this this story, this sort of being dragged into this overblown conspiracy plot that was going to devastate the nation and and such like, that is you know, it's just you know, um, to some extent, unbelievable. But trying to make the lead character being somebody that um the audience could go that could be one of us that gets dragged into this plot yeah i think that was the attempt but as you say they've had to for commercial purposes they've used somebody who is more sellable in the united states Uh, and he did a good job of the you know Fine, fine actor. Yes, uh, but that was that was. I think that was the spin they were trying to take on it, rather than the the books take on the character.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. It's it's the everyman being dragged into a world that he's unfamiliar with. We we mentioned North by Northwest. That's a prime example of you know Cary Grant mm-hmm. being dragged into this whole whole plot involving James Mason and and secrets and you know just being on the run, basically. But he also follows this up. I think it was Saboteur a few years later is a similar sort of like innocent man yeah. running away. It, it, it's interesting. Um, Robert Donat, he's he's supposedly playing a Canadian in this yes. movie. Yes. Yeah. The most um. un-Canadian sounding Canadian that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, and it's, it's brought to our, to our attention quite early because when he first goes to the theatre and sees Mr Memory, um, he asks a question how far is Winnipeg from Manitoba, I think it is. And it's always oh, it's a Canadian gentleman from the colonies. How did you do, sir? You know, so, <laughs> yeah, they,
0: they, have to, they have to have, at some point early in the film, they have to have somebody else pointing out he's Canadian because you wouldn't know
1: otherwise. But is there any relevance <laughs> to the fact that he's Canadian? Because he isn't, certainly isn't in the other <laughs> two versions of the film.
0: No, I mean in I mean in the in the book and the other versions. There's the more of a, of a, a, a British connection, either been been Scottish and and been expatriate Scot, yeah. or um, he's been a, a Scot who's been living in Africa and then has returned to London. That's the the, the sort of the take that is elsewhere. I mean, mm. and Robert Donat um, was he was English, yes. at least English born. Mm. Um, so why why they felt I don't know I don't know no. why they felt the need to say Canadian really. I'm just trying um, to think when, if there's any
1: point in the plot that it becomes important or relevant or useful the fact that he is a Canadian.
0: The only other real real point at which they're referencing the Canadian aspect is when he's being dragged away at one point by the police after yeah. being one one of the many captures he escapes from. <laughs> yeah. um, He's a Houdini really. <laughs> but um the mind you leaving him next to a window he can just sort of push against and he collapses <laughs> in order to jump into the street was a bit of an easy one for him. But um luckily he didn't get damaged by any of the glass. True. Uh, but no, he makes a, a reference asking asking the Pamela character, the Madeleine Carroll character, mm. asks her to phone the Canadian embassy. Um, in order to help facilitate his release, or in some way, that's a, a protection of him because then there's an international aspect yeah, to his arrest yeah. rather than it's easier just a, a domestic thing. Yeah. So I think that but that's the only other reference there is, and I don't think that's a big enough.
1: No, it just oh. doesn't seem relevant, does it? To the I
0: just don't I don't know whether they were maybe trying to get around um, people in the United States going. It doesn't sound like one of us. Whereas if oh he's a Canadian, that's why it doesn't sound like one of us. <laughs> it might have bought a little bit of transatlantic,
1: bit of leeway um, to accent it. Accent leeway, yeah. 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 But,
0: but yeah, the, the character for all is, you know, is different to the book and to, to an extent different to the other interpretations of it. I, you know, it works yes. um, because the film works. Yes, it's you know the you, you could, there's people out there who probably happily pick apart bits from it um to try and and as they do try to actually point out that a film that is widely regarded as has been a classic and been mm. great they'll try and find holes in just because they're, they're petty like that people but do that but this it, it it works it's it's
1: very it's very quick as a film oh uh, yeah it's I, a you know, pacey 85 minutes or whatever it is and it just you know, it's relentless, isn't it? Yeah. Even, even in the non-action scenes, the dialogue is snappy and fast-moving. There's, there's no padding in this movie whatsoever. No,
0: it's it's one of the early... I mean, I can understand from the era that they had mm-hmm. that there were you know, ev- the costs, implications of every little bit of a film used. Um, and I think there was something I've heard, um, it was probably from one of Adam's podcasts yeah. um, about the, the the cost of a film and uh, the length of the film that if they if the film was shorter then people were more likely to buy it to show in their cinema because they could show it more More times.
1: often that's right yeah. yeah so there's
0: maybe that element as well but as you say even the bits like where when this they're in the kitchen talking or when he's at the crofter's cottage yep. they're, they're talking there it, it's quite it's quite quick dialogue um, in that it's, it's not got any useless dialogue in there.
1: No.
0: It's quite stream, streamlined. Um, there is wit in some of the things that have been said, the banter, which I think is another Hitchcockian thing, really, as well, that um, in many of the films that we've already referenced, particularly the Cary Grant ones, yes. there's, um, there is that sort of wit Oh In, yeah, uh, it's also uh,
1: quite saucy. This as well for 1935.
0: Oh, yeah, for 1935. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. I mean, he's going back to this woman asking to go back to his home with him, um, which he
1: immediately agrees to without batting an eye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the same and with the going, stockings and things like that, where they're handcuffed together, and, and Madeline Carroll's trying to take off her wet stockings. That—that's that, one lingering shot. But yeah, then he, then and he again, says,
0: can, "Can I give you a hand?" You
1: know, yeah. I, he's, but it's it's Hitchcock and it's a blonde then for yeah. isn't it so that would be key to pretty much most of his other movies between now and the end of his career
0: <laughs> yeah or to his life i think
1: yeah exactly
0: um, um, that, that's absolutely yeah and, and this is the key that you've got that but thankfully I, i'm a little bit i'm a little bit unsure about the the, the performance of um miss smith yeah um, the original protagonist uh that sort of helps kickstart. i think her performance was probably one of the weaker ones but Everywhere else, I think that the the performances are are, are either good or absolutely resplendent, to be I honest.
1: Totally agree with you. And just touching back on what you said about there are some people that will pick holes in this because that's what they do. There is one glaring thing that could have resolved this whole thing after 10 minutes. <laughs> the whole classic knife-in-the-back routine. When when <laughs> our original protagonist, as you say, Miss Smith, gets, gets stabbed in the back... And she comes staggering into Hannah's. Well, he's not in the bedroom. I think he's on the couch, isn't he, at the time? Mm. And she comes walking in. We don't know if she's been stabbed at this point. And then she just collapses. And then it just opens up this whole plot now of what's going to go on. Why didn't they kill Hannah at the same time?
0: Well, it's it, yeah. It's one, <laughs> it's one of those things that you know, like it's like of D two and C three PO, they've mm. blown up the escape capsule. As it actually fell out the within ten minutes of the of. Star Wars new hope that would have just ended the entire, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> entire yeah. sequence of movies, so yeah I mean why why didn't you know why maybe they felt that um he might be more of a danger to them, who knows or yeah. they they got disturbed and they they just took flight or whether that was a warning to him to actually um hand over what he knew it's that maybe could have been elaborated a bit more, but I think the the beauty of what hitchcock can do is he can leave leave it with less detail in that respect but make more of a yeah. film because the gaps are some of the things that you actually play with in your mind and leaves that mystery and leaves the speed you don't have time to think about what's going on in that respect because it's all moving quickly and you're dealing with you know the the next move of of the hero's challenge against the the people who've got it in for him. You're yeah. not busy thinking, oh, well, that, that's just silly. He could have just been killed straight away at the same time.
1: Yeah, the film um, the film covers a lot of ground in the 90 minutes. You know, it, it, it starts off in London, up to Scotland, yeah. back down to London. Yeah. And you don't get a chance to breathe and take in, like you say, the, the missing parts of the narrative, because they're not important. You know, that train journey up on The Flying Scotsman to... To, to Edinburgh or Glasgow wherever he ends up is, is, not, is not important because it's going to be an eight hour train journey you know so we, we don't linger too much on that we go bang fourth bridge that's what we need to get to this part here um,
0: Absolutely yeah I mean you know back then it, it would have been you know eight hours on a on a train. I mean, yeah. now it's probably more, close to fifteen. But um, <laughs> they, they—that's why they don't show any of it until he gets to Edinburgh Waverley. Mm. They don't show any of, of that because it's—it's it's no it's not important. There's, there's, no there's you know, it is just moving in from one location to another. It, it, there's, there's no yeah. need to show anything until they reach, reach um, the sta- station yeah, in Edinburgh.
1: I'll tell you what I do like about this one. I mean, we've we've described it as a drama, a Hitchcock drama, but I think it's as much as a a comedy well not a, a laugh out loud comedy but certainly light-hearted um as much as it is a drama
0: well i think there's a there's there's a we know particularly from adam but we know ourselves that that there, there was a a, a mischievousness a, 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 <laughs> a, a um a humor um pranks and stuff that hitchcock loved yeah that was that was, that was him all over what you know and he sprinkled humour in his most of his films. I think possibly not Psycho, but the the, <laughs> no, the in in the main the rest um, and you know some of his some of his suspense um, thrillers mm. and, and stuff are funnier than his comedies, to be oh, honest. Yeah. Um, but he he he, he put humour in there. He he didn't want it to be staid and dry. And serious because that's not how he viewed life himself. There was always an opportunity to make a quip, yeah. and that that is a vein that is running through a lot of his films, and including yeah. this one. And it does actually give you does actually give you a bit of relief from the speed that we were talking about with the the pursuit. Mm. It, 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 there's there's bits where they stop and they have a bit of witty banter, and, yeah. um, which which is in you know in keeping with. The characters and the situation, really.
1: As so I'm it's saying, not
0: that, it doesn't stand out and and jar, but it exactly works again, and he judges that exactly right about how much or how little is needed to to make it work.
1: Yeah, even in the dramatic parts, I don't think it's taken too seriously. There, there's still this, as I say, this light-hearted undercurrent throughout the whole of the movie. Um, You know, the, the heavies are not comic book heavies, but they're not menacing to a degree where it's, you, know, you just think they're, they're almost, they are almost sort of cartoon characters almost, you know, it's, oh. it's it, you know, it's the, the long coats, the trilby hats. I mean, the, I think it's the anonymity of the villains that is
0: um, what he's going for. It's not that there's particular, it doesn't focus on particular individuals so much, apart from that, the in the later sense, um, some of the bigger people who are pursuing him. Most of the people who are pursuing him, um, including the police, anybody. This stock character, they? yeah, they're, and that anonymity that is that is against uh, uh, this grey wall, rather than it being um, one individual that he'd been able to spot out of a crowd.
1: Yeah,
0: that, that that adds the extra risk to his his pursuit.
1: Do you know what I found? I just smiled when I saw it. When was the last time you saw a movie where one of the leads actually gets away with putting his finger in a pocket and it pretending to be a gun? When did that last ever happen in a movie? Um,
0: I believe that was um, back when I watched um, Gene Wilder in... Um...
1: <laughs> what, is he star crazy?
0: Because, he, yeah, he was, the master, he was the master of the finger in the pocket. Um uh,
1: I just, I just, that's something you don't see anymore, isn't it? It's just like I've got, I've got a gun here.
0: No, I haven't got away with it for years, to be, to be honest. Um, Next time I'm trying to get you to buy me a drink at the bar, I'll try it. Just yeah, um, this
1: this finger's loaded. Um, Yeah. Did you spot the Hitchcock cameo?
0: I did. Yep. Yes. Um, Throwing a piece of paper away. Yes. Um, yeah it was blink it and was you miss it mm. blink and you miss it which was more blink and you miss it than most of them yeah Um i had to go back but,
1: I, I I wasn't specifically looking out for it didn't even cross my mind that there would be a hitchcock cameo especially with one of these early movies and it's it's where the bus pulls up isn't it and he seems yeah. to walk past i thought he was throwing a packet of cigarettes away but it was a piece of paper as you say and i just had to rewind it very briefly and i thought yep i'm pretty sure that's him and, and i checked online and it was
0: 'Cause I was looking for him in the um Mr Memory scene. I thought he might yeah. be in the in the audience there.
1: Which is that was
0: what I was I was thinking that he might be. Yeah. Um and, you know, looking looking carefully, uh, no he he wasn't he wasn't in that scene. So um paying careful attention to that, I can I can, you know, I can tell you Mayor West was forty two at the time. So <laughs> um that was one of the questions asked of Mr. Memory, how how old is oh, uh, right. Mayor West okay. <laughs> But Um, Yeah, cameo, which again is is a trope of um, Alfred Hitchcock and seeing it so early in his career, absolutely. You know, it was obviously something that we were looking for and other people, even at the time, probably wouldn't have been aware of.
1: I'll tell you what I liked, you talking about typical Hitchcock elements. We've mentioned, like, the blonde lead, the man on the run, mistaken identity... There's a lot of familiar landmarks. The fourth bridge scene is is iconic, I think. It, it ties in with Mount Rushmore in North by Northwest, or, you know, where he uses landmarks as part of the plot. But also, I don't know, it was just this whole thing about... There was a, there was a shot, a couple of shots that I thought were really good way before their time. There's one particular scene where they're handcuffed together in the back of the car... And they're going over the Scottish moors and they're trying to find the way to Inverary. I think it is, just before they get to the bridge. The shot is actually of them in the back of the car and then he pans the camera out. And obviously this is still filmed in a studio on a green screen, you know. But then it cuts to the car driving away, pulling away. It, it It looked almost seamless as if, you know how they do it with CGI nowadays where the camera is very fluid. It can go in and out of people and in and out of buildings and cars and things like that. Yeah. It looked... You know for a fact that that was filmed in a studio, but then you've got an um an exterior shot, and it just looked as if they were perfectly, perfectly cut together. I'll tell you what else I noticed as well. Continuity was Alma Revel, who became Alma Hitchcock. I don't know if they're actually married at this point or not. Adam would tell I, us.
0: No, I seem to remember... If, oh, possibly, but I... I... I s-
1: Mm, I don't from, know. From, from, yeah. From,
0: from from Adam talking about it on his wonderful um documentary about Alpha Chitchcock, which mm. um everybody should should give a go oh, who's definitely. interested in Alpha Chitchcock. Um the Secret History of Hollywood. The I believe this was him um getting her getting her onto the actual film yeah. was um, his way of being able to interact with her, and this is where they started to actually develop a, a,
1: a closeness. Ah,
0: there you go. I could remember in that incorrectly.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh. But it was it was that was a, you know, absolutely, absolutely. She was she's there from the future, early days. Future Mrs Hitchcock,
1: yeah. yeah. Briefly, other characters we haven't mentioned John Laurie. Have to mention John Laurie surely. Nineteen thirty-five. This is thirty plus years before. His most famous role in Dad's Army. Yeah, he um, crops up in quite a few early British movies, John Norrie. It's surprising that. Well, this is it. I'm, you
0: know, i would not be surprised if he wasn't far off at some, you know, in the near future, um, getting into the Village Hall of Fame because truth, of, of yeah. his his frequency in in films that were, you know, he was in the Third Man and, and stuff like this. Yeah, isn't it? he yeah. he was in a, a, some notable films. And um, I think that was he in Henry the Fifth.
1: He's in maybe? one of the, the Olivier Shakespeare's, yeah. isn't he? Yes.
0: So I think it's you know he's he's in a, a number of, of films that you know we can cover in the future. So it'll only be a matter of time before he does enter into the Village Hall of Fame. And you know, obviously playing a, a stereotypical Scot in this yeah. and in Dad's Army, but you know he's he's a character actor, but he's a no, he's an incredible character actor. He's got, you know, he's not just there, just putting on an accent and a oh, touch no. of an eye and in and them having put some facial hair on him or something. He's actually, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a, a bloody quality actor.
1: Well, his wife is equally qualified to come under that um, statement as well. It's Dame soon to be Dame Peggy Ashcroft of all people is his wife. Yeah, again, oh, absolutely. Yeah, who again will crop up in the Hall of Fame eventually? You know, but. With with Peggy Ashcroft, I think her movies, when we get round to reviewing them, will be some of the later stuff. You know, the David Lean's like Passage to India or Sunday Bloody Sunday or something like that that she was in. You forget that these are the starting points of careers for a lot of people, the early 30s British movies, that people would actually progress onto to major Hollywood success. Obviously, Hitchcock being the prime example here, but Robert Donat, you know, he was... Um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I think he won the Oscar for that, did he not? I'm not too sure. No, 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 it was 1939. I think it's the same year that we were talking about the Golden Year of Hollywood. Um, but he was certainly nominated. And uh, Madeline Carroll, you know, it's it's a very, very important film in regard to British cinema. I think not just because it's Hitchcock, but I just think it's it's the start of a, a real investment in British movies. It's
0: it. It definitely is the scene at the time as far as filmmaking within the UK was at a stage where Hollywood, yes, had got a jump and had really capitalised on what it had as far as talent and money, but the Brits were 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 doing incredible things and they were actually getting on board and were were actually showing the way yeah. in certain respects and obviously. Hitchcock being one of the people that when he was allowed to do things like this showed um, enormous innovation in bringing together the aspects that he picked up from some of the um, German expressionism and, and all these kind of historical things he he brought them into the commercial sphere and I think that that was something that was years ahead of anything in fact it you know didn't actually enter hollywood until he did
1: yeah to be perfectly
0: honest um and that that was it was although they were churning out films that were low budget in the uk still i think that there was these special gems that came out that were pushing the boundaries and hitchcock being you know one of the prime movers on that that meant that the, they picked the filmmaking styles and the stories. I mean, the story, let's face it, I mean, it's in itself has been repeated constantly. And how much of that was because Hitchcock picked it himself, whatever people would have picked up on it to to do anyway, I think they probably would. But um, the stars that were picked, or the stars that became from it, it was vehicles for them to launch their careers. Absolutely, as you yeah. say. And without the combination of of the uh, innovative directing from Hitchcock and the story plot that was something that would become, it would become an archetype for for future films. Those combinations absolutely give an enormous kickstart to people's careers who, you know, had the acting talent to show off. And it was then taken up, as you say, right up until um, whenever um laurie um died when i mean when did john laurie die it would have been was, in
1: the 80s wouldn't it because yeah Ed's army finished 77 yeah i think it was
0: and you know okay unfortunately we never got to see i don't think we ever got to see um you know where um robert donut would would go because he died Ooh, he died very young quite,
1: wasn't he yeah
0: like young so, well, not that young. I mean, it was in his 50s and that's really, you yeah. know, anyway. but uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: but no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can see him having um, having a, a, a career right up until his 80s doing some amazing oh. work that would be, be yeah. looked back on as being um, classic even in his later years because of his talent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this has a lot of worth to it, but even beyond all that that you can take as a, a cinephile and um, this podcast particularly being a focus on British cinema as far as what f- the formation was and what the inspiration was and what the f- the impact was, mm. just watching it as a film, your Sunday afternoon sit there and watch and, and blast past you quickly and you just go, Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. a lot of people will be put off at the fact that this is 1935, but don't be. Don't be put off by the fact that that there is a lot to this movie that you'll enjoy, you'll laugh at. You'll be shocked at some of, like we say, some of the sauciness in the dialogue and the scenes that are being presented. But at the same time, there's that still has that he was the master of suspense you still have that element of suspense that element of action it all just works really well it's it's a great little movie from 1935 just want to point out we don't mention producers very often on this show equally important as Alfred Hitchcock is Michael Balcon who was the producer here who originally was the producer on the early Hitchcock stuff, like The Lodger and The Original Man Who Knew Too Much, things like that. He is more famous. Now, this guy will be in the Hall of Fame very soon because he was the producer on The Blue Lamp, which we reviewed a couple of episodes back. Oh, right, yeah. right. But he's more famous. He was the guy that was the head of Ealing, pretty much, because he was the producer of The Lady Killers, Man in the White Suit, Whiskey Galore, Passport to Pimnica all of those. Um, Titfield Thunderbolt. He was the man, the head of Ealing, pretty much. If if you see an Ealing movie, especially one of the comedies, it will have Michael Balcon's name on it. We will see him because he, he he did Dead of Night. It always rains on Sunday, which I want to bring to you at some point. You know the original version of Dunkirk. You know things like that. Yeah, I'm the just Antarctic. looking now.
0: You know he did The Long Arm, which at some point I want to bring. There and, you go. And Things. So yeah, look at that. Yeah, it seems. <laughs> yeah, he's he's instrument. You know, he is instrumental in bringing a lot of the the key films of the 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 early I
1: don't know, half a century of British cinema to um
0: to the far,
1: absolutely. So we will hear lots more about Michael Balcon in future episodes. But I just wanted to make a make a point of him because we don't normally talk about producers, we always talk about cinematographers or directors or composers, you know, screenwriters. But that guy was a very powerful man, you know, he was like a head of a studio, a bit like Harry Warner or Yacone or someone like that, you know, the the Hollywood version. This man had his finger on the, on the pulse of the British film industry at the time, which is very, very important. Out of the three versions, now you've seen all three, I've seen all three. Can you put them in order of preference for yourself?
0: I think it's difficult. Mm. I think it's, it's, um, you
1: know, it's,
0: it's, I've, I've got on, I've got somewhere the, um, Tori Amos cover version of "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and it's <laughs> it, it's not it's not the it's not the same song um, in in that respect. I've got a fondness for the, the uh, Robert Powell one because that is the one I've seen most often, and yeah. obviously the one that um, I saw first. But the best version of it is this one, even though watching the um, the Kenneth Moore one, that that one is a great film in itself. So. You know, you, you watch each one of them and you can see that they're adding something to it. But I difficult the the, the now, you know, having rewatched this one with a, a better eye that I have now,
1: yeah.
0: Um I can see that there's there's no way the others um stand up to this one really because w- without this one, they wouldn't they wouldn't be what they were. Not just because of them mirroring certain aspects of what was done in this one. Hmm. But I don't think I don't think that they um, that some the of their parts would add up to to being what they are if they didn't have this as a, as a springboard. Really. Yeah. Um, so this one, this one, I think does does pick the post. Even though I do still have a fondness for both of the other ones. To Interesting.
1: Be I thought you were going to go for the Robert Powell one. I thought you would have put that top of the tree. I, they, well,
0: yeah, until I until I'd watched this this week. Yeah. That was that was the case. Wow,
1: interesting. Um, but, yeah. but
0: on the, on rewatch of this, I've you know this is refreshed in my mind. Mm. I mean, who knows when at some point in the future when we watch the Kenneth Mo one, I might actually go, oh well, having rewatched this <laughs> Kenneth Mo one now, I'm actually saying that this is a better version. That's because sometimes that kind of thing happens. It but, does. It, yeah, yeah, I I. I've reappraised this um, and moved it up because um, when I watched it previously, I didn't appreciate it as much as I did now. Yeah. And I can see, as I said before, not just that it's, it actually provides such a template for Hitchcock himself and other people, but what he does with what he's got is amazing,
1: really. It's worth watching for for people that are probably only familiar with Psycho or The Birds or you know the, the the famous North by Northwest era of of Hitchcock movies. Personally, I'm still putting Kenneth Moore version above this because of my familiarity with it and and my love for that movie. This will be second, followed you know the Robert Powell one third, unless they do find a Kenneth Connor version, which will probably
0: oh yeah that would be that would be number one there'd be no chance i mean sorry hitchcock but you're uh, you're just you just uh you're just playing for time really yeah, until that gets it, didn't try
1: hard enough it's certainly a film not not for hitchcock completists you know if, if if you're a hitchcock completist and you're just gonna oh i'm just gonna watch this one because i have to no just watch it because it is a great movie Yeah, I think it's doing
0: a disservice to it if you're watching it just for the sake of completionism.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that go, you know, go through a a director's whole canon of work and, and they'll watch them in order, possibly, and it'll be just, go, oh, I've got to watch these early ones until I get to the good stuff. Well, no, the good stuff is quite early on. You'll be surprised, even, you know, when you go back and watch The Original Man Who Knew Too Much and The Lodger, great movies in their own right.
0: Yeah, I mean, this film's, you know... It's its age. I mean, it's um, it's it's you know, it's older than sliced bread. it is <laughs> yes, um, Indeed, it's certainly not. Which, 1935. which, yeah. which um, <laughs> I remember seeing in, in one of the scenes where he's cutting a lo- cutting the loaf of bread for her, yeah. and he's cut he's cutting it about an inch thick. Yep. And I was just thinking, <laughs> uh, but it, it's um, you know the the age of the film in in that respect. Um, it it in some respects that adds to this yeah. because it where it's set.
1: Mhm. Yeah,
0: you know, it's more contemporary. Yeah,
1: it's it's the age so, of music. It went to when it was written. Yeah, it it was written in 1915, wasn't it? It was pre-World War 1, I, mm. I think the original source yeah. material. But it's great to still see that you know we've got the age of the old music hall, you know, where people that do a memory act were pulling in the crowds. You've got chase scenes involving 1930s cars, you know, steam trains.
0: You got you, get, you got a train going slow enough that you can actually jump from it. Yeah.
1: You know, we've got very British stiff upper lips here. We've got bumbling landlords and landladies and Scottish crofters and what more could you ask for? It's a great great movie.
0: Yeah. I think it's it's one to be to be watched by people and not just for the sake of watching it. Definitely.
1: Okay. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with what we're watching next time and it'll be your choice for me. <laughs> Okay, so coming up next time on the Real Britannia podcast, it is Stephen's selection. Fire away. So what have we got in store?
0: Well, I've gone for a a comedy from 1957.
1: Oh, okay. I'm liking Um, the sound of it already. uh,
0: And um, it's been uh, somewhat inspired by some of the conversation we've been having Mm -hmm. um, in that it's um, the admirable Crichton
1: (gasps) starring
0: starring (laughs) Kenneth Moore
1: i love that film
0: (laughs) i thought i thought you might you know you might have some um awareness of it at least and and hopefully fondness for it so um i haven't seen it for um probably about six years five or six years so um i'm hoping to have a good reappraisal of it but um
1: it is gonna put um kenneth moore into the hall of fame and if I remember rightly, based on the conversation we had about Lewis Gilbert and educating Rita, I think Lewis Gilbert directed it as well. Isn't it one we've got Cecil Parker and a very young sally Ann Howes, who was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Truly Scrumptious, she's very young in this. This is how uh, well I know this movie. I uh, uh, <laughs>
0: uh, no it's got Cecil Parker in it, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, not sure. Sure. let's have a look Check. it is it's lewis so, gilbert yeah Celia and house yeah in lewis gilbert there we yeah. go
0: yeah so um so yes we shall uh we shall be uh having a a bit of a a bit of a wee laugh oh, at that, at oh, that, at that. There.
1: that is a great choice sir a great choice <laughs> a 1950s kenneth moore comedy comedy of manners for those that don't know it's, it's about a shipwreck isn't it of this very posh family well
0: yeah it's it's about um this is family who has its own an aristocratic family that has a, a their servants a butler particularly and in some respects the actual head of the family is is starting to see that there should be more equality um, between themselves yeah uh, but the, the 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 staff are the ones that still feel there should be um, a, a deference um, but then that they they are shipwrecked. And um there is um an addressing of how class is interpreted and how the interactions are and people's perceptions are changed through that. But it's a it's a it's a comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um the whole class
1: system put to the test basically. And you say
0: class system and comedy of manners, yeah. So that's um it's it's very British.
1: <laughs> wow, well done, sir. I like the sound of that. that's that's gonna be a nice little Run up to the Christmas in the middle of February, wherever we are now, because yeah. it, it is December at the moment. Superb stuff. Superb episode, sir, from yourself. Thank you very much for all your thoughts on 39 Steps. Looking forward to Admiral Crichton. Me too. So. Yes. Uh, all other episodes, just Google Real Britannia. I, again, I've lost my list of, uh, of places to find us. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Look us up. Check out some of our previous episodes if you haven't. Stephen, thanks a lot, mate. I'll see you very soon.
0: My pleasure. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Take care. Bon voyage. Goodbye. Good luck.
1: Thank you. hand up, son.